listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So now, if we will, go to your Bibles and let's start this morning back in the book of Matthew. Uh, We've been going through our Advent series called Surprising Grace. But I want to begin in Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to jump to the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. But I want us to look again at what Matthew is doing. Because Matthew is going to begin with um, the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes through the line of Joseph. This is kind of his father's family tree in Matthew chapter 1. But a a genealogy back then was a lot like your resume. It was your uh, heritage, your bloodline, your pedigree. And I don't know if you've ever kind of bought a dog that was going to be for a special purpose. And man, you want to make sure that pedigree is just right. And that's what Matthew is setting up for us. In fact, a lot of times your family tree determined a lot of things. It might determine your job. We see that from the tribe of Levi, you would be a priest. When the children of Israel were wandering and the tabernacle was moved, according to what family tree you were in, determined whether you rolled up the rugs, whether you carried the ark, or whatever it might be, your family tree determined what you might do. We even see that it would determine where you lived when Israel was divided up among the tribes. Depending on your family tree, this is where you lived. But as I was thinking back through this, I went back to my grandmother's house years ago. Uh, My grandmother was a great woman, um, woman of faith. But in her home hung this family tree. And it was a painting, I believe my aunt did it. But I remember uh, everyone had a little apple on this tree. So what she did, she made one for all of the families. And this was our part of the family tree. I don't know who owns or who has Granny Gurus now, but I asked my mom to send me a picture of this. And I want you to notice. So it was my mom and my dad. I'm the oldest. And I even remember my sister and then even my youngest cousins. When my grandmother uh, got everybody together, she was always real sentimental about special times. And she would bring their little apple that was painted. She would glue it, and uh, their name would be painted on that family tree. But notice, all the apples, the only thing that really distinguishes them is their name. They're all the same size. They're all the same color. No one one stands out. So Matthew begins, and I want us to see it's a lot like this family tree. So let's see how it begins in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, because Matthew is going to begin with one of the most prestigious family trees anyone could ever hope for. And this is how it begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So this is his family tree. And he begins the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then listen, there would be no greater privilege. I mean, Jesus comes from the family of families here. I mean, there's no greater family tree that you could imagine than to come from David and Abraham. I mean, think of Abraham. Abraham's really the first Hebrew, the, the father of the Israelites. God called him and made a covenant with him that through you, Abraham, the nations are going to be blessed. Listen, that's not a bad name to kind of have on your family tree. And then he says, David. 
the first rightful king of Israel. This boy that begins as a shepherd, he becomes a warrior, a poet, even a good dancer. And then the leader of the United Israelites. I mean, once again, I mean, that's not a bad name to have on your family tree. But as you read down through this list of names, Matthew does something that really, if you were living back then, if Matthew was writing directly to you, it would have been something that would have been surprising, even shocking. Matthew includes women. Now listen, this would have been highly unusual. Not that they weren't important, but when it came to a family lineage, a family tree, it was all about the men. And Matthew unusually puts in some women. But second of all, he includes four women that were outside of God's family. He includes uh, people that we're going to look at once again. That David, not one bad to start with, but when you get to these Women, these would have stopped the readers in their tracks. You see, this is a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the most famous Jew to ever walk the earth. But in this list, we have four women that are not Jews at all. In fact, we have some Gentiles, two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite. But as we begin looking through these women, hopefully, especially the readers back then, that they're shocked would have turned to awe. Because think back to week one. We looked at Tamar in Genesis 38. She's a Canaanite, but we saw that she was a woman of hope. Her only hope of her gaining a life of any type was going to be to have a son. But God not only provides her a son, He uses her to preserve the line, the lineage of Judah that eventually brings us Jesus. Who's our only hope? And then we saw Rahab, that Canaanite, Joshua 2. She was that woman of faith. And we saw how her faith protected her. It protected her family. And eventually leads to our salvation by bringing us Jesus. So Matthew throws in two Canaanites. And then he brings in a Moabite named Ruth. We could call her a woman of love. And we saw her love for her mother-in-law, Naomi. We saw how this outsider, this foreigner, had a love for God's people. We saw how God directed her every step, and she meets her kinsman redeemer, Boaz. God directed her step all along the way, and we saw that he is always working for her good. The same is true for us, no matter what happens in our lives, might not always feel good, but he is always working for our good. But now we're looking at this surprising thing is that God is going to use these three Gentile women that we saw to bring us from Abraham to David. The father of the nations to the king of Israel that he uses and he includes these Gentile women. But not only God is using these women that come from enemy lands, but they become one with Israel. God used Tamar, who conceived a child through incest with her father-in-law. We saw God used Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute. God used Ruth, this foreigner from Moabite on the other side of the Jordan River. But here's what's so surprising about this. That these were women that really would have been excluded. 
There's no reason that they would have any part of being a part of God's family tree through Jesus. First of all, they're Gentiles. They have no reason to be there. Then, you would think, why include them? Because of their lifestyles. But here is what Matthew is proudly displaying before all the people, that these women are in Jesus' genealogy. And Matthew holds them up proudly. Matthew is showing us that Jesus brings these outsiders, we would say immoral women, and he brings them into his family. But how could this be? How could God do this? How could he use these women? How could these women, from the outside, immoral, sinful, how could they be included to bring us the Savior Jesus? And it happens to what we read about in verse 6. In verse 6, you have the next woman, the fourth woman that was listed in Matthew's genealogy. So let's begin there this morning. It says, And Jesus, the father of David the king, once again prestigious. And David was the father of Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, by the wife of Uriah. So here's the deal is that David is everything you want in a family tree. He's a hero, a a warrior. He's that Robin Hood outlaw. He's the king. And I am so excited that uh, we are beginning to plan the spring series. Beginning in January for 16 weeks, we're going to walk through the life of David. But Matthew adds, just so that we're clear, he all of a sudden adds Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Matthew is saying this. He's saying, here's the best guy in the entire genealogy is David. But he has done something that is far worse than all of those women who people would have been shaking their heads and turning their noses up at when they read their names. Matthew is saying that the very best person that David, that he doesn't even deserve To be there. So here's what I believe Matthew's point in this genealogy is this. He is saying that no one, no one deserves to be in Jesus' family tree. Not Tamar, that should be obvious. Not Rahab, obvious again. And not Ruth. But not even David deserves to be included based on his merit and even his morality. And Matthew's showing us that everyone in this tree are there as equals. No one on this list deserves to be there. But by God's grace, they're included. And I think this is what Christmas is all about. Is that Christmas reminds us of this. Grace is greater than all our sin. Or I'd say it this way. Is that sin is no match for God's grace. I believe that is at the heart of Christmas because Christmas should remind us it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from, or what you have done, you are someone. Think about no matter where you come from, no matter what you have done, no matter who you are, you are someone that by God's grace, Jesus can be proud of. Listen, I know we don't often feel that way. 
You say, man, you just don't know what I've done. No, I don't. Man, you don't know where I come from. Maybe not. Man, you just don't know the things that I deal with, and maybe not. But no matter who we are, no matter where we come from or what we have done, by God's grace, we are someone that Jesus can be proud of. That He wants you in His family tree. He wants to take your name and He wants to paint it on the same size color, the same size apple as everyone else, and put you on that tree because grace is greater than all our sin. So let's look at this as he calls her wife of Uriah. You have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So let's turn there this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 11. So uh, beginning in January over the next 16 weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time in these books. And I would challenge you in this way, encourage you in this way. Man, if you've got some time over this Christmas break, go and read First and Second Samuel. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we read about the wife of Uriah. Beginning in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So spring is the time of year where wars often took place. The winter uh, weather has kind of cleared. It's hard to believe that you think of Israel, you don't think about that there's actually snow. There's even a ski lift in northern Israel. But once the snow would melt, the rivers would swell. But by come spring, at the end of spring, those rivers have gone back down. And that was a time that kings went to war. And Israel previously had been in a war with the Ammonites. And the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot. They lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And as an act of insult, the leader of the Ammonites, Hanan, took one of David's servants, shaved half his beard and half his head, cut off his clothing, and sent him to Jerusalem. So he gets there, but it's now spring. And David is, now it's time to go to war. And he's going to send out the troops. And they're going to be led by his most faithful servant, Joab. And look in verse 2. And it happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So David, first of all, is not where he should be. He should be at war as the other kings would be, but he stays home. He takes a nap. He wakes up, and he's just kind of on his rooftop cruising around. And his roof would have set higher than all of the others. You can go to the city of David today, and uh, where they believe this temple was, and you could look out over his palace. And that's where you would be. Everyone would know, oh, that's the palace where the king lives. And the king could then look out over his people. He looks over that rooftop and he sees a woman. And as he's looking out and he sees this woman bathing, then David begins the journey of his greatest fall. In verse 3, it says, David sent and inquired about the woman. 
So instead of looking away and instead of going back inside, he sends someone to find out more about that beautiful woman. And one of them said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So the Hittites at this time were not enemies. In fact, they worked very closely with Israel. But her name is Bathsheba. And write this down. Her name means daughter of the oath. Or daughter of an oath. And Uriah is one of David's warriors. In fact, Uriah is listed among the mighty men of David. Of all of his warriors, 30 of them stood out. And Uriah was one of the 30. They were the best, the bravest, the most trusted, the most faithful, the most loyal. And Uriah would have been a man that David could have counted on to lay down his life for the king. He's one of his best warriors, one that he could have trusted with his own life. But David is going to dishonor Uriah's faithfulness and his dedication and loyalty. Because I want you to notice three things over what we're about to read. First thing I want you to notice is, notice how Bathsheba is going to be referred to. Second of all, notice how cold and callous David's actions are reported. And notice the only thing that we ever see recorded being said by Bathsheba. So it's in verses 4 and 5. This is how it reads. So David sent the messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was being purifying herself from her uncleansliness. And when she had returned to the house and the woman conceived And she sent word and told David, I'm pregnant. So first of all, notice that until the end of the chapter, you get it in the very beginning, but Bathsheba is only referred to as the woman or the wife of Uriah. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Second of all, notice the actions of David in verse 4. He sent, he took, and he lay. I mean, there's no hint of caring, no affection, no love. David does not even call her by name. In fact, he doesn't even speak to her. And at the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. But also notice the only recorded words of Bathsheba. It's two words in the Hebrew. It's I am pregnant. And this is one of the reasons this story is so difficult to interpret is that we're not told how Bathsheba saw this. We're not for sure. Maybe she was baiting David. She would have known where he was. Maybe. Maybe she saw this act of immorality as an honor. We don't know. Maybe she was afraid to tell the king no. We are just not told. But we do know this. That we know true of David And true of us, when we find ourselves in trouble, or we find ourselves afraid that people might discover our sin, you know what we do? We try to cover our tracks. And that's what David does in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, 
uh, how he was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. I mean, isn't David just caring? I mean, he wants to know how everybody is. Then David said to Uriah, Hey, Uriah, you know, one of my 30 mighty men, a guy I can trust on, you know what? Go home. Wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him with presents from the king. So it brings him home, gives him leave. Hey, go clean up. Here's some presents. Go and enjoy. Go visit your wife. But Uriah, in verse 9, slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. And that, that should turn our stomachs. That David is acting like he really cares about Uriah and the other uh, servants, the other soldiers. He tells Uriah to go home and even gives him gifts. But Uriah doesn't follow David's orders. But he stays at the king's house. So what do you do when your plan to cover up your sin fails? You fall on your knees and you confess, right? No, you come up with a plan number two. That's what Uriah does. And next we see this surprising reversal in verse 10. When they told David, Uriah didn't go home last night. David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark. The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open fields, unprotected. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And you know what you see? You see Uriah the Hittite acting more like an Israelite than David. You see him acting like a king more than David. So in verse 12, David said to Uriah, Remain here today, but tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David is like, I can't get rid of him. So David invited him in. And he ate in his presence and drank. So that he made him drunk. So he fills his belly and in the evening he's thinking, all right, surely he'll stumble home now. In the evening he went out and he lied on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So plan number two to feed Uriah, to get him drunk, instead of going home, he goes down to the servants' quarters and he sleeps. But David continues to take things into his own hands. Plan number one didn't work. Plan number two didn't work. And so this is where we really see how unconfessed sin only leads to more and more sin. As we often say, sin splatters. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And he sent it by the hand, notice this, the hand of Uriah. So Uriah carries this letter. And then the letter he wrote 
set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. Then draw back from him. Leave him out there that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were mere valiant men. And the men of the city came out and they fought Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David makes Uriah one of his most faithful and most dedicated servants. He makes him carry his own death warrant. And Joab falls through with the orders. And Uriah, he's killed. So let me kind of summarize what happens to the end of the chapter. So Joab sends word that Uriah, he died in battle. So David then brings Bathsheba into his home, and he makes her one of his wives. David has to be thinking, Woo! That was a close one. Man, I almost got out of all the things that I've done. No one knows. It'll be okay. Life will move on. But that's not the end of things. Because as we know, God knows all and He sees all. So He sends Nathan. Nathan comes to David, and he says, David, let me tell you a little story. He should have known then it wasn't going to end well for him. He says, hey, there's this poor man. He owns this one sheep. And there's this rich man that has flocks and herds of animals. But one day a visitor comes by. And he comes to stay with the rich man. Rich man knows, oh, it's my courtesy to show hospitality. But he's got all of these animals, but he refuses to kill one. He's unwilling to. So he takes the one man's only sheep, the sheep that would have provided his family with clothing, uh, could have provided things they could have sold. And he takes that man's only sheep. And man, this infuriates David. David, I mean, they say he's spitting mad. Until Nathan looks at David and he says, you are that man. And see, the great news that we know, if you continue reading, is that David realizes his sin and he repents. You can see that in Psalm 51. But that's not the end of David's sorrow. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, look at verse 14 to 16. He says, Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted that child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted, and he went in, and he laid all night on the ground. But notice again how Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife. And the sad news is, that child dies. And man, there's so much more that we could look at and say about that, but we're going to save that until we look at the life of David's series. But I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. It said, In Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon 
by the wife of Uriah. So after their first child dies, God blesses him with another son named Solomon. He'll then bless him again with another son named Nathan, where we get the line of Mary. But as you're reading through this, you can't help but notice how Bathsheba is once again referred to. All the other women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the last one will be married. They're all mentioned by their name. But she is simply referred to as the wife of Uriah. But at this point, Solomon, Solomon is born to her and David. She is David's wife. So why would Matthew refer to her as the wife of Uriah? Because I think he wants us to always remember, and especially David, that she first belonged to someone else. Bathsheba is this reminder of sin, but also of God's grace. And it's interesting that Bathsheba, you remember what it means? Daughter of an oath or a covenant. And as they say in Israel, names mean something. In chapter 7... God made an oath or a covenant with David. And God promised to make his name great among the nations. Respected. But you know what David is most famous for? It's by two associations. If you have anybody that maybe knows remotely about the Bible, but if they knew a little bit about David, there'll be two people that he is always associated with. Goliath and Bathsheba. I mean, he is forever linked to them. Two names that create memories of David, but they could not be any different. Think about it this way. First of all, you got Goliath, that ugly, cruel giant. Then Bathsheba, the beautiful, gentle woman. Goliath, he meets David when he's young. He's unknown to anyone, and he's untested. Bathsheba? She meets David when he's mature. He's well known. He's thoroughly tested and tried. We could almost say he should have known better. In the meeting with Goliath, David emerges triumphantly. Israel celebrates. But in the meeting with Bathsheba, he emerges in defeat. So why does Matthew include Bathsheba in the geology of Jesus Why is she referred to as the wife of Uriah? It's to show us that grace is greater than all our sin. That sin is no match for God's grace. His grace says this. Grace says that no matter what you've done, because you are of God's grace, you are someone that Jesus can be proud of. doesn't matter where you come from, Or what you've done, because of God's grace, you are someone that Jesus can be proud of. Because it's not based on your merit, your morality, or your achievements, but on Jesus. So why is this wife of Uriah included? I think it's because this story that we see in 2 Samuel is for everyone that has ever felt like, you know what, I have messed up in such a bad way that I'm beyond hope. This story's for you. 
I believe it's this story is because it's for anyone that's ever felt like, you know what, I've made such a mess of things. I've made so many mistakes that God could never use me. Well, this story is for you. It's because this story is for anyone that's ever felt like they've tried and tried, but they just can't move past their sin. I'd say this story is for you. It's because this story shows us that grace is greater than all our sin. And so Christmas reminds us that it does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from or what you have done. You are someone that Jesus can actually be proud of. That he wants you in his family. He wants to paint your name on a little apple that's the same size as everyone else. Because grace is greater than all our sin. And so may we remember that this season of Christmas. So no matter who you are, where you come from, or what you have done, know that by God's grace you are someone that Jesus can be proud of. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.